0: Um, The words will be on the screen, but you also have Bibles in the seat back in front of you. If you need a Bible, we want to encourage you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. It's easier to follow along and to learn and to study. While you're flipping to 1 Peter chapter 4, let me just say thank you on behalf of the pastors and our wives. We're so grateful for your gratitude. Uh, Nimi made the comment that, hey, we should spend more time than just once a year doing this. And uh, let me say this, you may only... One time of year, call us to the front and pray over us. But I need you to know that in all the ministry roles I've been in, there's never been one where I felt more appreciated, where I felt more loved, where I felt more encouraged. And I know I can say that on behalf of other pastors as well. And so uh, thank you for your appreciation today. Thank you for it last week and thank you for it next week because you faithfully encourage us. And we're just really grateful and it's an honor to serve you, uh, uh, the three of us and our wives as your pastors. And so we're, we're grateful we're grateful that you entrust us with that call. First Peter chapter 4, we're going to cover all of chapter 4 today. Um, I mentioned the last few weeks, we're speeding up through our series in First Peter with the goal of uh, finishing it before Thanksgiving. Um, and then we have some special, a special series and exciting things we're going to look for in December. And then in January, we are starting a new series that's going to last all of 2020 where we walk through all of Scripture together. I've talked about this some, you're going to start hearing more about it. What's the overall purpose of doing this? The overall purpose of doing this is because one of the things I've recognized, not just here at New Hope, it's true, but just in general pastoring, is that that many of us may understand and be able to know John 3.16 and other very, very important passages, but we don't understand how certain things in the Old Testament fit with the New Testament and vice versa. And so what we want to do is have a series where we walk through all of the story of Scripture together through the year, and not only in this time, but we're going to encourage you to in us together. We're going to do a one year reading together. I'm going to have a specific, a special journal that's going to be made for us. That's going to help you know how to walk through passages of Scripture together. And so we want to give you the tools, and we're going to just go on a journey together in 2020. And we'll talk more about that, but just know that that is coming. Last announcement before we jump into 1 Peter chapter 4 is next Sunday is the deadline for our marriage conference. Uh, that is on November 9th, and so let me encourage you uh, couples to sign up for that. Um, we, I told you last week that our speaker is my pastor from uh, Mississippi. He's coming up and sharing with us, but what I haven't told you, uh, because it, we just recently finally confirmed it, is Charles Band Anomalous Day is going to be leading us in worship during that time. So super super excited about having them here with us, and so um, now you know, right? And so if you didn't sign up, uh, n- there's a really good reason in and of itself to sign up to hang out with Charles and their team all all week long or all weekend long, and so grateful for that. Amen. All right, let's jump into it. I'm going to read all of chapter four, and then we're going to walk back through it together, somewhat expediently. But let me just read First Peter chapter four for us together. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the Gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers." Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks with oracles of God, and whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. If you have some notes today, let me just go ahead and fill out the main point of the sermon and we'll walk through it section by section. The main point of the sermon today is simply be Christ-like in a non-Christ-like world. Let me say that again. Be Christ-like in a non-Christ-like world. Saran, will you do me a favor and sit by your dad, buddy? Can you sit still by your dad? Can you do that for me? Hey, Saran, will you go sit by your dad for me, please? No? Come around. Alright, at least I need you to sit still for me. Can you do that? Okay. Hey, uh, be Christ-like in a non-Christ-like world. Hey, this is a oh, probably a really oversimplification to a lot of content that is in this text. No doubt about it. Uh, we're covering a lot of content, and so we're going uh, to illustrate a 30,000-foot view, if you will. There's some verses and there's some things that are not going to get answered, and we're aware of that. And I'm, I'm aware of that, but I'm going to try to explain as we walk through it section by section, of what and how this passage is encouraging us to be Christ-like, recognizing that we live in a non-Christ-like world. And so truth number one, we are to have a Christ-like attitude. A Christ-like attitude. Chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Notice where I'm getting this simple truth from. He's starting out and preparing us For what type of attitude are we to have? Recognizing Christ suffered in the flesh, therefore we too should be prepared to suffer in the same way. And he encourages us, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. I went ahead and read verse 2, as we think about this phrase at the end of verse 1, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I remember the first time really reading this, not just this week, but in general in my times reading First uh, Peter, I'm going, w- what do you mean that ceased from sin? Last time I checked, I'd like to think that I'm born of Christ. I-, I-, I believe and I do that Christ has forgiven me of my sin, that He's my Lord and my Savior, that He is my Redeemer. But for me to, uh, to this is a description here, someone who has ceased from sin, and I'm going, I haven't ceased from sin, and so what does that mean? Does that mean then that I just have to put myself in a place where I physically suffer, and if I put myself in a place where I physically suffer, then I will cease from sin? This is something that has played out in church history, actually, at times where Christians would, would uh, bring harm unto themselves as a way of disciplining them in their sin, believing that if I just bring pain unto myself, then that will bring me to a point of being without sin. Now, we recognize that Scripture teaches very clearly that, one, that when we are redeemed and we are forgiven, all our sin is forgiven, but yet we are not perfect. And the moment our sins are forgiven, we are, we've been set free from the penalty of sin, but we still have the power and the presence of sin kind of in our lives. But when we've been set free through the process of what we call sanctification, the power of sin is taken away, but eventually it won't be until we are fully redeemed when we see Christ face-to-face that the presence of sin is taken out of our lives. And we recognize that this process of sanctification and purification where we are ongoingly transformed back into God's perfect holy image does not come from asceticism where we bring pain upon our bodies, but it comes through the transformation of the Holy Spirit. Paul would say it like this in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed back into His image from one degree of glory to another. He doesn't say that we are transformed back into His image one degree of glory or another when we bring suffering upon ourselves. So what exactly do we take away from this text? Because he, he's saying we have ceased from sin. But listen to verse 2. It helps us understand what he means. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, uh, no longer for human passions, but the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, and he begins to list some of those things out. Here's what I firmly believe that Peter is saying, is that for those who have taken on the mindset of Christ and are being transformed into Christ and are being like Christ, then therefore, he's already explained to us in the first three chapters, guaranteed you're going to suffer. And now the encouragement that Peter is bringing in is to explain that when you suffer, and you're suffering for Christ, that this is a picture that you are of Christ, which means you are no longer of the realm of sin. Now, this is a technicality here, because I don't believe he is saying we've ceased from sin, meaning we're in perfection and we'll never sin again. But I do what, believe what he's trying to communicate is the whole theme from the very beginning of First Peter chapter 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. We've talked about this whole series that the exiles are us Christians living inside or excuse me on the outside of God's eternal kingdom living here in a non Christ like world. That we're living in a world that has fallen, a world that you and I were born into, and therefore we are exiles. But Scripture also teaches that prior to Christ that we are under the rule of sin, that we are slaves to sin. But through Christ, Romans 6 makes it clear that we're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer in the realm of sin. We're no longer under the bondage of sin. But we have been set free. Ephesians 2 says that we've gone from death to life. And now we are able to live out the will of God. So this communication that if you are in Christ, you will suffer. And if you're suffering, be encouraged that if you're suffering for Christ's sake, that's a pretty good sign that you are now set free from sin that you're no longer in that realm, but you're in God's kingdom. Therefore, as exiles, they, you are going to be persecuted and suffer for your sin. The rest of Scripture would teach, too, that, that the moment you give your life to Christ, that you're not perfect from your sin. If that's the case, then I don't have a lot of assurance in my salvation. If, if, the moment, if, if it's true that the moment I'm truly saved in Christ, that I am ceased from sin, then I, I don't know about you, but then I have to question if I know Christ because I'm still not living a perfect life, but I'm living a forgiven life. And so I think Peter's giving an argument not in absolutes of there will never be any sin in your life, but you're no longer under the bondage and control of sin. You don't live in that world anymore, but instead you live in the world of salvation and you live in Christ. So as, now that we are no longer under sin, verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in our flesh as exiles, I'm adding in as exiles to help us understand the idea, but as we live in the flesh as exiles, we are no longer living for, for human passions, which was controlled by sin, which was the realm of sin, but we are living for the will of God. See how he contrasts the idea that sin is under human passions, But when we've been set free from sin, that we can live for the will of God. Verse 3, for the time past, that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Gentiles, in reference here, are all unbelievers. Right? So, for unbelievers, the time has passed for living in the ways of this world. Is basically what he's saying. That they live for sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Have anyone ever been in a situation where you chose to, because as a Christian, to live out Christian values, and were simply made fun of and maligned for it? The world does not understand why we do certain things. The world doesn't understand why we don't want to engage in some of these activities. Because in, the, in our flesh and in our human thinking, this is what is fun. This is what brings life. This is what brings value. This is all there is in some ways. And this list isn't exhaustive, but he's just giving some examples. But we as redeemed, we put on a Christ-like attitude and way of thinking like Christ. And when we choose to live a certain way, we're going to be maligned for it. Just like Christ was. But they will give an account, verse five, to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. But though they, uh, or excuse me, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. We've had a few uh, obscure passages over our series, and this is one of them. Going, what is Peter saying? Right? Uh, what does he mean by the fact that the gospel was preached to those? who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. There's a few options of interpretation, but let me just tell you what I believe is being said here. Understanding um, first century Judaism, understanding um, the mindset of the um, the first century when it comes to the Messiah. Recognizing that Christians, Paul, Peter, the apostles in the first century church They were not a separate religion, but they were within Judaism. But they were simply claiming that Christ is our Messiah, that we believe Christ is our Redeemer. We believe Christ is God. We believe Christ is the Messiah. Now, understanding the idea of a Messiah is in Jewish ideology, a Messiah is someone who's going to set you free from governmental, political, um, any type of uh, captivity. They're going to set you free from all those things and that you will be your own independent state and that you will no longer be captive or slaves to anyone. That the Messiah was going to bring about a, a somewhat of a political and cultural revolt. So imagine with the gospel being Christ as the Messiah. What he's saying is the gospel, and this is true, that Christ is setting up a new world order. Jesus says when he, becomes to, when he begins to preach, and Matthew and Mark record this, his first sermon is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He is setting in a new kingdom. Now, we are a better understand, because we have all of Scripture and that we've had hopefully faithful teaching to recognize that this is a physical kingdom, yes, but right now it's primarily a spiritual kingdom. But imagine the first century Jew recognizing that Jesus is Messiah, the good news. That means that right now in this lifetime, Christ is ushering in His kingdom primarily we see that as spiritual. First century would have seen that primarily as physical reality of government and just this idea, right? So, if the good news has come that the kingdom of God is coming right now, when you look back over a few generations and people have died, then what was the point of them hearing the good news if they never got to experience the kingdom? Peter here, I think, is giving an encouragement for those that are suffering and that would even die for their faith that their death does not mean they're missing the kingdom. But in fact, that the gospel was preached to them, even though they wouldn't see the physical kingdom come to reality in their lifetime, the gospel was preached to them that they have died, but the good news is, though, that God's kingdom is ultimately a spiritual reality with a physical, and therefore, that they will be brought to life. See the language for this is why the gospel is preached to those who even to those who are dead. I believe he's referring to those who were alive, heard the gospel, and are dead. That though they were judged in the flesh the way people are, they now may live in the spirit the way God does. Now, I recognize that some of you may go, "Hey, I'm not I'm not 100% sure that that's what he means." And let me be honest with you that there are two or three other faithful potential interpretations but based off the context and based off the grammatical understanding of the language that I do believe, and most uh, scholars, at least that I read, do believe that is the best interpretation, that he is referring to past generations. Why might he refer to past generations here? Remember, he's writing to people who are facing persecution. Peter is writing and is going to die for his faith. His readers, many of them, will die for their faith. And if they think that verse seven, read verse seven The end of all things is at hand. When they think and believe that the kingdom of God is happening right now in their lifetime, death is not a promise, but death is often seen as a missing of the kingdom. This is why they struggle with the Messiah who had died. Hold on, you're telling me that the one who's going to redeem us died? How is that possible? Because we expect the king to be alive. So when you play off this idea of dead and alive, and this idea that the end is at hand, they're expecting it to happen in their lifetime. But if I die for my faith, does that mean I'm missing the kingdom? And Peter is encouraging them, no, just because you heard the gospel and were to die, you're not going to miss the kingdom. But instead, you'll be alive in the same way that God is spiritually. He's trying to encourage them in their persecution to take on the Christ-like attitude. Christ is. He understood the kingdom to be more than just a physical political reality. Therefore, he died in order to be a sacrifice for our sins so that the kingdom would be ushered in in a much greater way than just physical, but spiritual. I know it's technical, but that is my best explanation to what does he mean that the gospel is preached to the dead. I think it fits the context, especially when we go to verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. He's talking about the end of time. He's talking about those things. Now, we recognize this is 2,000 years later. We're reading this. What does he mean the end of all things is at hand? But he says, therefore, because the end of all things is at hand, we are to be focused in and have this attitude of not waiting till tomorrow. And truth number two that leads us into a Christ-like attitude leads us into verse 7, a Christ-like service. I know I'm going fast, but just bear with me as we continue to jump through this and think through application. How do I take on, once I take on this Christ-like attitude, it's really being prepared. I know um, many of you maybe have not grown up playing sports, and I know I use sports analogies way too much, Um, um, and I recognize that sometimes you don't understand, but for me, uh, let me tell you just to give an illustration of how Christlike Christ-like attitude turns into Christ-like service or attitude turns into action. Uh, for basketball, we, we practice, and this goes for a lot of different sports and a lot of different situations. But I practice physically, I train, I did all these things. But the number one way I practice for basketball is a lot of times I would just lay in my bed and I would play through scenarios in my head. If I was put in this situation, what would I do? If I was put in this situation, what would I do? If I was put in this situation, what would I do? Hoping that if I'm ever put in that situation, I don't have to think about it, but it just becomes a natural instinct and reaction. This is, I believe, the idea in how these two things flow together that Peter is dealing with. As Peter is calling us in verse 7, the commands of the passage are in what we're about to read, not in what we just read. However, if we don't take on a Christ-like attitude, then when we're put in situations where we need Christ-like service, we might not be prepared for it. But if we first are prepared in our minds, then when we put into a situation, we're ready to jump right into it. So this is what he says. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, here's the Christ-like service, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. find it interesting that when he's going, hey, the end of time is coming... The end of all things is near. Therefore, I want you to notice, what does it mean self-controlled and sober-minded? What does it mean when you're not sober? When you're not sober, that means something of some kind, some type of substance has taken over control of your thinking, your reactions, your actions. Right? Or reactions. And so, when he says sober-minded, it's this picture of having a clear mind. Nothing else is in control. You're focused. What we just talked about, Christ-like attitude. For what purpose? And the first purpose is for the sake of our prayers. So that we're engaged and focused in on prayers. Church family, as we talk about how to live a Christ-like and an unChristlike christ like world, it begins with prayer. It begins with us praying for one another. It begins with us praying for ourselves. It begins with prayer for worship. Prayer isn't just the, the character from Finding Nemo or the bird that just goes, mine, 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 mine. Prayer isn't just about what mine or I want, but prayer is very much about exaltation and worship. And so we start and prepare and how we gauge in Christ-like service is we pray. It's the reason why we try to devote our time and our services to prayer. And honestly, we, we, we don't devote enough time. We don't have more time often to give to prayer, but this is, this is a priority. If you're going to engage in a Christ-like way in a non-Christ-like world, you must engage in prayers. He says, he goes on, and we need to speed up with me. So, he says in verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. This is a simple verse. We could spend hours right here. But let's just think about the moment and the ways in which Christ's love has covered up your sin. That is, His forgiveness and His care for us, it's not because of us, but it's because of His love. And if we're going to live in a Christ-like way in this world, guess what? We're called to love people who haven't earned our love. That goes with inside this room. And I want to to point out that the Christ-like service section that we're about to read is focused on primarily how we love for one another. And so I do believe he's referring to the church ultimately here. Is that within the church, that how do we have love in such a way that covers up a multitude of sins but let above all he says earnestly love one another since love covers a multitude of sins we're a family and that means there's love and that means at times there's hate or at least friction right hate may be a strong word but there's there's at times where you might go I love them but I don't like them but guess what in a family we're called to love and to like we're called to to jump into situations for the sake of the Gospel and for the sake of love and we allow love to cover up a multitude of sins. We show hospitality to one another without grumbling. We care for one another. We welcome people in our home. We feed one another. We take in and just love on people. We are a family in this room. The church is not a place or an event, but it's a people and it's a family. and It's the body of Christ. Verse 10, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. And he gives two categories. Verse 11. Whoever speaks as one speaks oracles of God. And whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. I want to take a moment and I want to... Why does he give these two categories? Right? He could say a lot of different gifts that are options that are available. But why does he say these two things? Because he's listing out categories. I want to do a quick just survey in Acts chapter six, Acts chapter six, the church is growing and that because the church is growing, that the elders, the apostles are unable to care for all the needs of the people. And so a complaint came to the elders and they said, hey, we got people here who aren't being served. And so the apostles, the leaders said, "Okay, let's appoint deacons who can then go and serve the people so that we as elders and as apostles or as pastors, we use the word pastor today, can focus on the teaching of God's word and prayer. And this is the first time we begin to see a distinction of there are those that lead out in the preaching and teaching, and then there are those who lead out in serving. We see this distinction again in Romans. Romans gives a distinction of God's gifts, and it goes and it lists out the ones who teach and the ones who serve. We see this picture in First uh, uh, Peter chapter two, and th- or, excuse me, no, First Timothy chapter two and three, where Paul lists out the qualifications for an elder and he lists out the qualifications for a deacon. These are two offices within the church that one is focused on the preaching and teaching and prayer, and the other is focused on the serving. Now, that doesn't mean exclusively those two categories take place, but it does mean that those are the focus. Now, I say that to say this is that those are specific offices that represent these two things. However, the responsibility and the picture of teaching and serving, everybody in the church fits into one of those two categories. And at times, both, and they go back and forth. And let me tell you why. In 150 examples, or I'm proximizing, I think it's just over 140, examples of the root word for deacon, which means to serve, in the New Testament, less than five of them actually refer to the office of deacon. The other 140 approximately refer to every Christian and how they serve one another within the body of Christ. I give that distinction to go, we have an office of deacon, we have those official deacons, but their responsibility to serve, everyone in the church has. And in the same way, elders and pastors have the primary responsibility for the teaching of God's Word. However, we're all called to preach. We're all called to communicate the gospel. We're all called, that we studied last week, to be prepared to give an answer and account for the hope that is within us. Meaning, all of us, at some level, are called to teach, to preach, and are called to serve. And so Peter says here, you have a Christ-like service, that whether your primary gifting is teaching or it is service, these two categories that represent elder and deacon, but the practicalities go to every member be engaged in it. And so the question I have for you and I have for us is how are you engaging in the teaching? How are you engaging in serving? But you have a place in all of those. Let's encourage us, Christ-like service, to engage in those. And we understand that Christ did both of those things, and at times we are called to do both of those things. In order that... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Why are we to have a Christ-like attitude and a Christ-like service? Why are we called to be Christ-like in a non-Christ-like world? So that Christ could be glorified in everything. That we serve not for our glory. We don't serve for our fame. I promise you I don't get up and teach for my fame. But I do it because I hope that through the teaching of his word, I hope and I promise that those that lead in their giftings of song and music and those that serve in, in, in ways that are never on stage, I pray that the heartbeat would be that God would be glorified in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Truth number one, we have a Christ like attitude. Two, Christ like service. And three, we have a Christ like faith. Verse 12, beloved, I'm going to just read it all the way through. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also, be, may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. I recognize in verses 12-19 through the word faith is not used. So why a Christ-like faith? And I believe because the point of Peter explaining this is summarized in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What does it mean to entrust your soul to something? What does it mean to entrust your money to something? This may help us understand. Entrust is a banking term in some ways. That when I invest my money, I expect and want two things. First, I want whatever I invest my money into to to keep my money safe. Right. If I put my money in a bank, if I'm investing it in a bank, and or to, to better understand illustration, maybe a long-term savings where you know, there's other, it's more of an investment, then I expect them to keep my money. I expect for me to show up the next day and at least have the same amount of money that I, that I put in there the day before. But two, if it's an investment, I expect and want a profit. Yes? Right? I, I, want, I, want, I want more than what I just put in. I'm like, I want, I want extra. But it's this idea of entrusting your money is you're entrusting it for safekeeping and prosperity. So what does it mean to entrust the core of your being to something? What is it in this world that you can entrust your soul to? Where those two things happen. Your soul is kept safe and it prospers in that, in that investment. I'll tell you what, I, I've in, in my relatively young life, I've invested my life into things that I thought of this world that I thought would bring back value. And for a season, it was great. But recognizing our soul was not created for creation. It was created for the Creator. And therefore, He is the only one that we can entrust the soul to where it is kept safe and it prospers. And this is the beauty of what having a Christ-like faith, living in a living Christ-like in a non-Christ-like world, having that attitude living out that service and recognizing that I can have this faith because I can entrust my soul to my King. Question, have you ever entrusted your soul to Jesus? And I ask the question because I firmly believe it is the only thing that you can entrust your soul to where your soul will be kept safe and it will prosper in the good hands of Jesus. Please understand that all of us entrust our soul to something. You may not realize it, you may not use that language, but we do. All of us are turning to something as preeminent in our life in which we are entrusting our soul to. It may be our job, it may be a career, it may be a relationship, it may be a dream of something. And all of those things are important. And to use an illustration of my wife, my wife is of utmost importance, but praise be to God that that she isn't expected to carry my soul and I'm not expected to carry hers because I would fail her miserably. But when I don't expect her to be that for me, but I entrust my soul to Christ, then I can be for her what I need to be for her and vice versa. But if we entrust our soul into something else, it won't be safekeeping and it won't prosper. But we're all entrusting our soul to something. For you, you just got to answer the question, what is it? And it's with great love and it's great encouragement. Not just because scripture says so, but because I've experienced it, that Christ has kept me safe and my life has prospered. And I'm not referring to earthly prosperity because that may or may not come. That's not a promise. But my soul has prospered in the hands of God. Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you entrusted your soul to him? Let's pray, Jesus, I thank you that you are, to use illustrative language, not theological language, but to use illustrative language, I thank you that you are a good banker of my soul. I I pray that you are a person who invites me into relationship because you want to care for my soul. You want to give life to my soul. You want a relationship. And much better than the illustration of a banker in the same way that I as a father want to keep my kids safe, protect them, and pour out blessings upon them for their prosperity and for their goodness in the same way that you're a loving father who says, hey, hey, you can entrust your soul to me. Because I'm a good father who will keep you safe, who will pour out my blessings to prosper you. Jesus, I pray over this room, and I believe that you are worthy to give our souls to. So, Jesus, I pray for the, in this room that there's someone who does not and has not entrusted, meaning surrendered all. Given it all to you, just open hands with you, place it all at the feet of Jesus. Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to work in their lives to let them see that you are worthy. You're the only thing capable of owning our souls and not crushing us, but protecting us. You're the only one who can carry the weight of what our souls need. Our spouse can't carry that weight. Our jobs can't carry that weight. Our emotions can't carry the weight of being our own saviors. But you can. And you have. So Jesus, would you call all of us and help us all to to know that we can have faith in you. That we can trust you. last question I ask you in the audience tonight is simply, will you entrust your soul to Jesus in this moment? Will you trust Him? Will you entrust your job situation to Him? Will you entrust your family to Him? Will you trust Him? Will you put on and have that Christ-like faith? I want to ask at this time, would you just join me in standing? We're just going to spend some time worshiping. But this is This is a time between you and him. So even though I just invited you to stand, if you feel the need to sit, sit. If you want to pray, pray. If you want to write, write. This is a time just between you and him. And I would encourage you that you would not leave this moment without going, Jesus, I entrust my soul.